In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, everybody. Um, the next sacrament we're going to be dealing with is the Eucharist, but it's such an important and vital sacrament. It's it's and it's so such a big topic. We're actually going to have to divide it up into two classes tonight. We're going to be looking at it in the context of the Mass, and next week we'll be looking at the the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Okay, so we're kind of spreading things around a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to try to stay as focused as possible here. We're going to begin in the Old Testament as we normally do, and I'm going to show you some of the prefigurings of the Mass and its foundation in the Old Testament, and then move into the New Testament, look at how Jesus establishes it, and then what happens after that fact, some of the commentary on it. Uh, a great deal of this is going to come from uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Unfortunately, you know, we're really going to have to, to tighten that up. I'm, I taught a whole class on the the book of Hebrews, uh, so we'll have to be kind of judicious in pulling certain things out of it. Um, but I want to start, if you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 22, okay? Now we're going to be talking about the Mass. The Mass is the heart of the covenant, the new covenant, okay? Uh, it's the, the representation of Jesus' sacrifice, and we're going to answer the question, is it really a sacrifice? What is going on in the Mass? Uh, but it's the representation of his sacrifice um, in an unbloody manner, okay? Jesus doesn't die again in the Mass, all right? So that's our goal. And what we need to do is review a little bit about the covenant because it, the Mass is all about the covenant. We talked about this several different times. Uh, what is a covenant? A covenant forms a kinship bond, right? A covenant is different from a contract. A contract is an exchange of goods and services, okay? A covenant is an exchange of people. Contract says, that's yours and this is mine. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine, all right? Uh, what we're basically talking about here is God forming a bond with humanity, okay? I will be your God and you will be my people is the Old Testament language that's usually used in establishing the covenant between God and man. But what it comes down to in the New Testament is that we become sons and daughters of God. Okay, We're born again, as we talked about last time, in baptism. All right, But the, the power for all of that to take place comes about through the Mass. All right, now, when you form a covenant, a couple of things take place. There's several different ways uh, in the ancient world that you could form a covenant, but the traditional way, and especially highlighted in the scriptures, is that you have an oath, right? You swear an oath, and there's usually some type of ritual and a sacrifice that takes place. Now, the idea of an oath, remember we talked about this, Though the word for swear an oath comes from the word for seven in Hebrew. When you swear an oath, you literally seven oneself, right? That's why in creation, the seven days, you know, signifies God forming an, uh, a bond with all of creation, right? Specifically with Adam and Eve. They're born as sons and daughters of God, right? 
and that relationship is damaged through the original sin. Okay, the bond with God is broken. Man and God were at one, but then they're at two after the sin. Now, in forming a covenant, like I said, you use an oath, but built into the oath are blessings and curses. Blessings if you keep the covenant, and curses if you fail to keep the covenant, right? Uh, you can never break the covenant, in essence, because the covenant is unbreakable because God is the one that establishes it. What you can do is violate the covenant, and when you violate the covenant, it kicks in the curses that are already built into the covenant. Okay, so let's dive into chapter 22, and we're looking at the patriarchal age. We're going to focus in on Abraham because... Uh, he is the father of faith, and what happens here has repercussions all the way into the New Testament. But remember, we're talking about the patri patriarchal age, right? When we think about priests in the Old Covenant, we often think about the Levites, and we'll get to them. But when you go back to Genesis, this is way before Levi, okay? There was still the priesthood. In fact, when you look at Adam, they use the language in chapter 2, um, God gives him a command command in the garden to till and keep the garden. Those are the commands. To till and keep the garden. Uh, the keep To keep means to guard it. Okay? Which brings up the question, guard it from what? Right? That question gets answered by Satan. But to till it. Right? Till and keep. When you get to the Mosaic Covenant, those words, to till and keep, are associated with the Levitical priesthood. So you have Moses here being depicted in a priestly manner early on. And then you get to, uh, for example, Noah. You see him building an altar and sacrificing. And if you remember, the animals come on two by two, but there were some animals that were brought on that there were seven of, right? Clean animals, they mentioned. Clean signifies that they were acceptable for sacrifice. And the number seven, again, is, uh, points to that as well. So you have this idea of sacrifice early, early on, well before the Levitical priesthood. You see all the patriarchs building altars and offering sacrifice. They all function as priests. So what was the priesthood back then? Okay, that's the question. So let's take a look at Abraham here in chapter 22. <clears throat> Remember, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 12, I believe we talked about this, there were three promises that God made to Abraham at his original calling. And then in chapter 15, 17, and chapter 22, those three chapters, those three promises are upgraded from promises to covenants. Okay, all building up to the bond between God and man that he's going to establish with Abraham. So when we get to uh, chapter 22, after these things, this, this is chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only begotten son. All right, that has reminiscence of God speaking about Jesus at the baptism and the transfiguration, right? His beloved son. Take your son, your only begotten son, Isaac, 
whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in this day and age, human sacrifice was not uncommon, right? And so Abraham would have been like, oh, you're like all the other gods, right? But remember, he had promised that it would be through Isaac that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky, right? So regardless of what God is saying now, God promised that, and Abraham believed it. And as an aside, we're going to see a lot of things here that prefigure Jesus' sacrifice, okay? The first being where? Moriah. Go to the land of Moriah. Well, Jerusalem is built on one of the hilltops of the, the mountain range of Moriah, okay? We learned that from uh, uh, 2 Chronicles. That's the site of where the temple was built, right? So this sacrifice of Isaac is going to take place, you know, thousand years or, you know, 1500 years prior to Jesus' sacrifice in the same place, okay? And it's, it's going to be right where the temple is built. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, right? So Isaac has been condemned to death, and he's going to his execution place, with two other people. Sound familiar? Okay, Jesus crucified with the two thieves. All right, so the two took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day. Okay, this takes place on the third day after his death sentence. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Notice that. This is the faith that Abraham has. You know, he knows that Isaac will be the one through whom he will have all these offspring. And what does he say? I and the lad will go. He knows he's going there to sacrifice Isaac. But he says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And we will come again to you. So in some way, he knows that God will deliver him. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, they went both of them together. Notice again, he's carrying the wood on which he's going to be sacrificed. Christ with the cross, right? Isaac prefigures Jesus here. And this is important here. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide, right? He will provide the lamb. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar. Abraham is a priest, right? He's building an altar. He built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And one little aside, oftentimes people read this and they think Isaac is like a little kid, you know, and, and Abraham binds him up against his will, you know. No, when you look at the details of this and, you know, trace the, the timeline, Isaac was a full-blown man. 
and Abraham was an old man. So he would not have been able to bind up Isaac without Isaac's cooperation, right? So Isaac is displaying faith here and trust in his father as well. Verse 10, Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only begotten son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eye, eyes and looked, and behold, be, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. Remember, when you form a covenant, you swear an oath. Here is God swearing an oath. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only begotten son, I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. All right, so... Abraham is faithful, and God steps in, right? But God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, okay? And what will be the result? Blessing, okay? A worldwide blessing. So that's what's at stake here, okay? Isaac wasn't sacrificed because Isaac wouldn't be a sufficient sacrifice to account for all the sins of the world will he right christ is what will fit the bill for that because christ is not just man he is the god man he is both true god and true man right the the sacrifice the obligation from the covenant from original sin from adam has not yet been fulfilled okay but god is promising that it will all these covenants that we see in the Old Testament, the thing that distinguishes all of them is that they depend on man. They depend on us. They don't depend on God to keep them. And every time, man fails because we don't have it in us to keep the covenant. We're frail, fragile at the moral level, beyond the physical. And we don't have it in us. It takes God coming down and becoming one of us to fulfill the covenant because God does have what it takes. Okay. So, the priesthood here. We're talking about offering a sacrifice. Where do we see the priesthood here? It's obviously in Abraham. It's in all the other patriarchs. What the priesthood is at this time, it's built into the family. It's the domestic priesthood. Okay, it's a family affair. The priesthood is, the sacrifices are voluntary. 
Okay, they are at people's own whim to worship God. And the priesthood follows father to son, but not any son. The pattern is father to firstborn son. Firstborn son, we're going to see, is a very important legal position within the family. All right, the firstborn is one who will become the future patriarch of the family. Okay, so the father is like the high priest, and then the firstborn son is his priest, who will eventually rise up and become high priest and become the father figure for the entire family. All right, remember, we're talking about covenant here. We're talking about family life. Okay, so the firstborn son is critical. And the distinguishing thing about Genesis is we see time and time again that the firstborns are failures, with one exception, and that is Noah's son, Shem. All right, we'll come back to, to Shem uh, in a little bit here. But Shem is the only example of someone who is designated as firstborn son in Genesis, who rises to the occasion, who is a faithful firstborn son. Okay? All right. Next, let's move to the next book, Exodus. So turn over to Exodus chapter 12. Flashing forward a few hundred years. Okay? We get the promise, we get the covenant with Abraham for a future worldwide blessing. And then we move to the next stage of things. Remember, the covenants expand. They start with Adam and Eve, a couple. Then they go to Noah, which is a family. And then they go to uh, Abraham, which is a tribe. And then we get to the time of Moses, where it's 12 tribes. All right. This, in chapter 12, we have Exodus. You know the story of Exodus. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, where they've been enslaved for hundreds of years. Okay, And he does that by working miracles through God's grace. Specifically, there are ten plagues that come about. It begins with the Nile turning to blood, and it goes all the way up to the tenth plague, which is what we're going to look at here. Because what coincides with the tenth plague is also the establishment of the Passover sacrifice. Okay, We're going to see two different things here which kind of equal out into one. Um, in much the same way that Jesus died on the cross, yet he had the Last Supper, and the two are unified. What we're going to see here is we have the tenth plague, the Passover sacrifice, and then we're going to have Moses establishing the, sacrifice, the covenant on Mount Sinai with fire and all sorts of uh, things going on, God's manifestation to the people. Uh, and we're going to have the establishment of the covenant there. But every year afterwards, the covenant is going to be renewed by the Passover meal. Okay, So the Passover meal is the deliverance of the people. And then the covenant is established in the wilderness. But the Passover reenacts this salvation of the whole event. Right? It renews the whole Exodus experience. For the Jews year after year. When they celebrate the Passover, it's as though they're tapping in to the whole Exodus experience themselves. Okay, that's the renewal of the covenant. And covenants are, are usually renewed. There's something because you form bonds, just like you know, members of the family. We have birthdays. We remember 
birthdays of our fellow members of the family. In marriage, you know, the, what is it that seals the covenant between a husband and wife? It's the marriage bed, right? The marital act is what seals the covenant. So every time that repeats, the covenant between the husband and wife is renewed. Okay, in the same way the Passover each year is the renewal of that covenant to remind themselves we are children of God. So, this is how the 10th plague plays out. Book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Now remember back to Abraham. God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Remember those words, right? The Passover is about the sacrifice of the lamb. Verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to his house shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat them. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. <clears throat> Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And no plague shall fall upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay. The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. Who are the firstborn, did we say? The firstborn are the priests, right? In Genesis, all the firstborns were failures. Okay, these are not accidents here. God has a plan. The blood is the sign of this, that you will not die. You had to kill the lamb, roast it, but then you had to eat the lamb. Right? The symbolic idea here, you know, with a covenant. Sacrifices were part of the covenant. You would swear an oath, right? When you swear an oath, blessings and curses. Blessings if you keep it, curses if you don't. The symbolic value of killing an animal is that you are represented by the animal, right? The idea is if you don't keep the covenant, 
what happens to that animal that was slain, you deserve that to happen. Right? You are to die. The animal died for you. Okay? The firstborns are the ones that are being saved by the death of the lamb. Okay. Now, the Seder, which is the Passover celebration today, you know, the, the rites for it, you know, involve the, the lamb, but also bread and wine, right? The, the wine is, becomes very important in these celebrations, and we'll see that when we get uh, to the, the New Testament, the celebration. All right, so, um, okay, let's, let's move forward to Exodus 19. Flip a couple of pages. Just real quick here. One of the things that's promised. God is talking about the covenant. This is chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, this is God speaking. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Right? Remember, blessings and curses. If you obey my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel's purpose in being set apart was to be a nation of priests. Remember what we said. Who were the priests? The firstborn, right? Well, you don't have to turn here, but going back to chapter 4, this was the instruction that God gave Moses in order to get the people out of the land. He told Moses, go to Pharaoh. And this is what he said. This is chapter 4, verse 22. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If, re if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. So what's going on here? We're both individuals, but we're also a corporate entity as human beings. You know, We're individuals, but we're part of the human family. Among the human family, we have nations, right? And God looks at them as sons and daughters. But Israel is his firstborn son. And firstborn sons are supposed to be priests, right? They're supposed to go out and sanctify all the other nations. That was plan A. That's what God originally intended. That was the, the goal for Israel. But what did we say? All the firstborn sons are failures. And so it is with Israel. Now, after that is where the formal covenant is sworn. If we flip over to Exodus 24, this is important here. We're going to see words that are going to be echoed in the New Testament. Chapter 24 is where the formal covenant is established between the 12 tribes and God. Okay, through Moses. He's the mediator of this covenant. So beginning in chapter, verse 4. You know, we've got the 12 or the, uh, the Ten Commandments given to the 12 tribes. Uh, and here we see, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, all the other prescriptions and obligations that they had. He wrote them all down. 
Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar. Again, you build an altar, you're acting as a priest. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So this is the covenant language, the establishing of the covenant. Verse eight, and Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, the blood of the covenant. Now, what's the symbolic value here? You know, he, he puts it on the altar, you know, referring to God and then puts it on the people. The idea here is if they keep covenant, they will get the blessings. If they don't, they'll be like the bull. Okay. But there's also additional value to the symbolism here. Okay. When you when we talk about our family, even today, we talk about them being our flesh and blood, right? That's the additional surplus value in this symbolism, right? Because when you form a covenant, you become flesh and blood with the people you're joining covenant with. They are your kin now, your brothers, your sisters, right? With God, he's our father, flesh and blood. That's important, especially when we talk next week about the Eucharist and its real presence. All right, so we have the establishment of this Mosaic covenant here. And it's the firstborn, right? The firstborn are the priests. Israel itself is the firstborn among all the other nations. But what did we say? All the firstborns are failures. And so you get to chapter 32, and what happens? You have the golden calf, right? We all remember Charlton Heston and all of that. Maybe some of you. Um, but the golden calf, okay? What's the deal with the golden calf? Well, first of all, it was one of the gods of Egypt. You know, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel, right? They fall back into their old ways. But it's a golden calf, and it represents the, the big three. It's gold, it's a bull, and, you know, what do bulls do? They make little bulls, you know? So it, it represents money, sex, and power, essentially. That one symbol, right? All the things that the people should be pulled away from, that becomes their God. Okay. The fallout from this are the Levites. And you see this in verse 29 of chapter 32. Because the Levites are the ones, you know, Moses stands up when he comes down and sees them worshiping the golden calf. And he comes down and he says, who's on the Lord's side? Well, it's all the Levites that stand up. You know, Moses is a Levite, you know, that kind of helps things along, right? But the Levites stand up and they pull out their swords and start killing all the people that are worshiping the golden calf. Kind of extreme, don't you think? 
What's his response to it? This is chapter 32, verse 29. And Moses said, addressing the Levites, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. They've ordained themselves. And in fact, what we see played out here is that the Levites replace all the firstborn sons as priests. This is the birth of the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood, as it was known over a thousand years later in Jesus' day. And you see this explicitly mentioned in Numbers. You don't have to turn here. But this is a line from the book of Numbers. It's called Numbers because you, know, you get all the tribes being numbered, right? The, the genealogies, the names, it's like can be pretty monotonous. But we see in chapter 3, verse uh, 44 and 45, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, take the Levites, all right, the Levites, his tribe, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle and the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. So what we, the idea behind this if you go back to the golden calf incident, who were the ones front and center that were worshiping the golden calf? That were the ones that got slain? It was the firstborn sons. They were the ones leading the way. And it was for this reason that they're defrocked and the Levites put in their place. Okay. Now, where is this all going? Why does this have anything to do whatsoever with the mass? Well, I'm going to try to answer that for you. Move on past this. You know, a few hundred years later, we get uh, the establishment of Israel more to the way we remember it. We get the Davidic covenant, right? King David, right? There's no king back in this time with Moses, right? He's the leader, but he's a prophet. He's not a king. He doesn't intend to be a king, right? But the people want a king. And so we get David. And David is wise, right? He screws up, like everybody, you know, in a major way in a couple of instances. But he's a man after the Lord's own heart. And he understands that something was lost back during Moses' time. Okay, he understands this. And so when he has the chance to uh, rescue the Ark of the Covenant, remember the Ark of the Covenant, gold box, holds the Ten Commandments. It eventually goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's the most sacred object in all of ancient Israel. All right, It's been lost. It's been captured in enemy hands. When David establishes his kingdom, one of the first things he does is he goes and gets the ark and brings it back. Okay, Interesting thing. When he gets the ark, this is uh, in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 6 and then into 7. He gets the ark, and when he comes back, this is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and well, let me just go back to verse 12. All right. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom. Obed Edom is, you know, he, he stops for three months. Uh, and it's kind of interesting here. Uh, we have um, kind of foreshadowings of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant here. Uh, because 
David, when he gets the ark, he says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me, right? That's the same language that Elizabeth uses when Mary comes to her. How can the mother of my Lord come to me? You know, and so he stays there at this site of Obedidim for three months, just like Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. And it says that he was blessed, okay? Blessing, what does that mean in the Old Testament? Blessing is almost synonymous with having babies, right? You know, multiply, you know, that's the whole idea of blessing. All right, so verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed, as David, he sacrifices an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was belted with a linen ephod. So David and the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. A linen ephod, right? Doesn't sound significant. But when you go back to Exodus, who wore a linen ephod? The high priest. David is sacrificing, right? He remembers prior to the golden calf how things were supposed to be, okay? Am I making too much out of this? Well, David wrote the Psalms, okay? And there was a particular Psalm, Psalm 110, which was a coronation Psalm. It was the Psalm for when his son became king. All right. Back then, they didn't wait till the king died before they appointed an heir, right? Because a lot of times they had so many kids, you know, it was bound to be civil war. Civil war much of the time, anyhow. But, you know, David established Solomon, his son, as king prior to this. And so he has this Psalm, which is incredibly important when we get to the New Testament, which frames his kingship. This is how it begins. The Lord, this is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what does he mean, the Lord says to my Lord? The Lord, God in heaven, says to my Lord, he's talking about his son here, who is now king. Right? This is a coronation psalm. So David is referring to his son as Lord because he is now king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. At the right hand of God. It's another way of saying you have God's power and authority. And it's a bold statement. Right? And this is a, a psalm that Jesus went back to and basically said, this is referring to me. And the book of Hebrews uses this almost as an outline for the whole book, talking about Jesus. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, the Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of all your foes. Yours is dominion on the day you lead your host in holy splendor. From the womb of the morning I begot you. Verse 4, critically important. The Lord has sworn. Remember, when you swear an oath, you form a covenant, right? David is referring to the covenant with God. He's saying, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. His son is not just going to be king, he's going to be a priest king. But who the heck is this guy Melchizedek? Hold that thought. We're going to get there in a hurry. Finally, we can get to the New Testament. All right? I know you're probably thinking, when are we ever going to get this? We're spending so much time in the Old Testament. Let's switch over to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 26. 26, 26. All right? We're in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. But it's not just a meal. What kind of meal is it? It's a Passover. Right? That's the context. This is a Passover meal. It's the last meal with his disciples before he is sacrificed. And who does John the Baptist call Jesus when he first sees him? Behold the Lamb of God. Right? Jesus is the Passover Lamb because he's God's firstborn son. And here at the Last Supper, he's going to be forming the final definitive covenant. Listen to the words that he uses. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Right? One little aside here. Those four verbs, took, blessed, broke, and gave, they're the same exact four words that Jesus uses in the multiplication of the loaves and fish. The same words. It's not an accident. Right? He multiplies the loaves and fish. So what you see that he initially has is much more than is actually there. Right? He's able to feed 5,000 with which looks like just a small amount. Right? Because that's what he's going to do at the Last Supper. He's going to feed everyone with what looks like just a little bread. So Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a chalice And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The blood of the covenant, that's the same exact words that Moses used when he formed the covenant with Israel. When God formed the covenant through Moses. The blood of the covenant. For the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Jesus is establishing a covenant here. With all. What we have here is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Way back in chapter 22. The Lord will provide himself a lamb. Remember? The Lord will provide himself a lamb. And the fulfillment of that, the guarantee of the covenant was a worldwide blessing. This is the covenant that was promised. This is the blessing that is coming from Jesus' death on the cross. 
Now, we always think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, right? He is the, the sacrifice, the, the Lamb. But he's also the high priest. And that's something I want to spend a little bit of time with that we have left talking about. The book of Hebrews is the one book in the New Testament that focuses on Jesus, not as victim, but as priest. Okay, he's the victim. He is what is offered up, but he's also the priest, the one who offers it. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Just keep flipping to the right. After all of Paul's letters, and go to Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to see that guy that we just heard his name a minute ago, Melchizedek. He's going to play a vitally important part in what's going on here. So we're going to have to take a second and look back at him and see who he is. Remember, David said about his son that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? There's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. That's who Jesus is. Not a Levite. Right? He's going to be out of the, after the order of Melchizedek. And this is where that's all basically explained here. All right, this is the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. And let's just tackle the first six verses here. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's a basic definition of what a priest is, right? You have God, you have man. The priest gets in the middle. He's the mediator. And what does he do? He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the very definition of what a priest is. If you don't offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, you're not a priest. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for those of the people. So he's not talking about Jesus yet. He's talking about the Levites. The big contrast here is what is the difference between Jesus and the Levites? Because remember, this is first century Israel, Judaism, okay? The only priests that they know are the Levitical priests, and they've had them for over a thousand years. You know, there's a thing called momentum. They get used to something. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. Right? The only priests they know come from the tribe of Levi. So how in the world is Jesus a priest? That's the obstacle that is there for preaching to the Jews. I mean, they've got it ingrained. You're a priest, you're a Levite. Jesus is not a Levite. Verse 4. And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. He was the high priest. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, 
you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? Jesus is not a Levite, but he's a priest like this guy Melchizedek. Okay, so let's take a minute here and figure out who this guy Melchizedek was. And so keep a finger on that page and just flip back to Genesis for a minute, back to chapter 14. This is the, during the time of Abraham. Abram, actually, he hasn't been renamed yet. And he has this um, problem that arises. He has these four foreign kings who come in and attack five local warlords, right? And, and they plunder them. And during this whole thing, his nephew Lot gets captured. Okay? So Abraham has to come to the rescue of Lot. But these four foreign kings just beat these five kings all around little old Abram. Okay? So he devises this night attack, night assault, and he beats the four kings who beat the five kings. So what does that make Abram? King of the hill. Bad dude. Right, yeah, bad dude. <laughs> right? I mean, he... You know, what are the five kings going to think? Oh my gosh. You know, we just got beat by all four of these kings and he just took out all of them. Better not mess with Abram, right? So he has established himself as a, a force in the area. That's the backdrop for what goes on here. So let's go to chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, he's one of the four kings here, uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him, that is, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram's response, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, What's going on here? Who's this guy Melchizedek? It says he's king of Salem. First of all, the name Melchizedek is not a proper name. It's a title. It means king of righteousness. Okay? So it's a title. It, he doesn't give the name. Right? And he comes out and he's a priest. It's the first mention of priesthood that we have explicitly in the book of Genesis. Right? But what does he offer? He doesn't offer a bloody sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice of bread and wine. Hmm. From a Christian perspective, sounds very interesting, doesn't it? Right? The early church made a, a lot about this. So he's a priest king, but he's from Salem. Salem gets prefixed later on to Jireh Salem, Jerusalem. He's the priest in Jerusalem at the time. And he blesses Abram. And the book of Hebrews makes a big deal about this because you don't have somebody inferior blessing someone superior. You know? 
And in the book of Genesis, blessings mean everything. You know, think of Isaac's two sons. They almost killed each other over the blessing. All right, blessing was something that once it was bestowed, it cannot be taken back. And in fact, you see it as the mark of the next patriarch. All right, it signifies, you know, be fruitful and multiply. That's the, what the blessing is all about. And it's something that's given or supposed to be given from father to firstborn son. Right? But you can't give what you don't have. And we see the blessings take place. We see Abraham blessing Isaac, and then Isaac um, blessing Jacob. You know, but where does Melchizedek get the blessing that he gives? The last time blessing is mentioned is Shem, Noah's firstborn son, the only faithful firstborn son in all the book of Genesis. So I think the book of Hebrews takes it for granted that Melchizedek is Shem. And by the way, when you look at the, uh, the Targums, which are like paraphrases of the, the Old Testament Hebrew, you know, they, they don't literally translate the words. They, they're like paraphrases. It's like the living Bible kind of thing where, you know, it kind of simplifies the, the scriptures for, you know, regular people. Um, but in the Targums, when it comes to Melchizedek, it says that is the great Shem. You know, it just takes it for granted. That's who it is. And these are from, you know, early on, the first century, right? And the early church all felt that Melchizedek was Shem. But you're not going to find any scholars who will give that any credence today. Uh, but I think there's good reasons to, to believe that at least the, book, the author of the book of Hebrews felt that way. Uh, we don't have time to go into that. But the significance here is that if that's the case then Melchizedek is a firstborn, right? It's pointing back, the order of Melchizedek is pointing back to the family priesthood that we see in the patriarchal age. That's where the priesthood is supposed to be, right? And not any priesthood, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. And what does he offer as a sacrifice? Bread and wine. What do we see Jesus doing? Offering bread and wine. Okay, so, Melchizedek, all of chapter 7, uh, deals with Melchizedek. We can't go into that uh, anymore, but I do want to bring out a couple other things here. In chapter 8 of Hebrews, if you flip back to Hebrews chapter 8, he sums up the whole idea of Melchizedek here. You know, what's the deal with Melchizedek? He says, now the point is, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. When you talk about seated at the right hand, that's actually a reference back to that Psalm 110. David's coronation psalm for Solomon, where you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have such a high priest. Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. A minister in the sanctuary and the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord. Now understand what he's saying here. This is years after Jesus' death on the cross. Years after the Passover. 
And he's saying he is, right now, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent. Go back to the first line. We have such a high priest. Not we had. We have present tense. Right now, Jesus is a high priest. But he's a high priest in heaven. Remember what we said back in chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So if he's a high priest right now, he's offering gifts and sacrifices right now. Back to chapter 8. He highlights this again. And verse, go back to verse 2. A minister in the sanctuary in the true tent which is set up not by man but by the Lord. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Right now, he's in heaven offering a sacrifice. Otherwise, he's not a priest. Okay, do you get that? Right now, Jesus is acting as a priest. But how does that work? Because when we think of sacrifices, when we think of offering a sacrifice, what do we think of? You know, the the Passover lamb. What is the sacrifice when we deal with the Passover lamb? We think of it as the killing of the lamb, right? But really, that's not the heart of the sacrifice. What is the actual language he says here? Back to chapter 8, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Not to kill, but to offer. And in fact, when you go back to the Passover sacrifices in the temple in ancient Israel, you know, the priest, there was tons of lambs that they had to slaughter. Right? Oftentimes, the priests weren't even the ones doing the slaughtering. They were the ones who were offering, right? presenting the sacrifice to God. That's the heart of the sacrifice. It's not the killing. In some ways, the killing is incidental. The offering to God is the sacrifice. Saying, God, this is yours. Okay, And, and how do we know that? Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and we'll close with this. There's so much more I could talk about. I'm trying to keep it brief, but we got to look into the inner throne room, into the inner temple in heaven. Now, the book of Revelation is divided up into two parts. The first half of the book ends with a book being opened and read. The second half of the book of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you think of anything that's divided into two parts where the first part is the reading of a book and the second part is the celebration of a supper? The Mass, right? That's what the book of Revelation is. And so we have here in chapter 5, Revelation 5, verse 1, And saw, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Right? That's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus is in heaven as a lamb with the wounds of his crucifixion still upon him, right? Offering himself to God. He's in the inner temple. His standing, which is the posture of the priest, right? So he's there as a lamb, as though it's been slain, offering himself eternally to God the Father, right? That's what the Mass is. The priest is an altar Christus. He's standing in for Christ. He's presenting the very thing that Jesus offered at the Last Supper. And Jesus said, do this. Not whenever you do this, do this. It's a command in memory of me, right? When the priest does this, he's tapping into what's going on into heaven. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about us being surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. You know, that's what's happening in the mass. We're tapping into what's going on in heaven. The sacrifice of Jesus who is presenting himself eternally to the Father on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. So, end of part one. We'll pick up next week with uh, part two.